You're listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, we're looking at a biblical theology of covenant part two today. Um, we started last week talking about uh, covenant theology in a broad sense, not specifically what we would title covenant theology, but just a theology of covenant. Uh, we looked at what that means essentially is, is developing a framework for how to understand the biblical story. And we understand it, uh, as we saw last week, through covenant, both an old covenant and a new covenant. And so our goal in this series is to establish or to develop a uh, a, a scaffolding that's needed to kind of understand how the storyline of the Bible fits together. It's seeing how God chose to interact with man and establish his kingdom. We said it's important for several reasons. One, it gives us an understanding of our relationship to the law, to the gospel, and just the overall structure of how God wants to redeem man. We saw some practical implications of that last week, that our understanding of baptism flows out of our understanding of covenant. Now, you have beliefs about baptism that may not flow out of your understanding of covenant yet, but you were taught about baptism based on somebody's understanding of how the covenants work together. So this isn't just fill your head with with knowledge that, that other people don't have type of thing. It's not that we're trying to make our church smarter than other churches by looking at a topic like this. It's, it's, it's important because it has practical implications for us. How we baptize in this church is shaped by how we understand covenant. How we live in relationship to the Old Testament law is shaped by our understanding of covenant. So what we're talking about may feel at times like simple head knowledge, but it's important to see that some of the practical things that we do as a church, why we do it the way that we do it and why we don't do it the way that other churches may do it, is based on our understanding of how these covenants work together. We said last week that the gospel is not properly understood, The word of God is not properly understood. The reality of who God is is not properly understood. And then how to live the Christian life is not properly understood until we see all of those things through the lens of covenant and how God has revealed himself in Scripture. We said last week that there are essentially three major systems or three major views on how to interpret the covenants in Scripture. We said the first was dispensational theology. We talked about covenant theology, and we talked about new covenant theology. And let's see how well you remember those different systems. Which one of those systems would we say are paedo-baptists? Paedo-baptists. means you have to remember what paedo-baptism is. Baptism of infants. So which one believes in that? Covenant theology. Most people that are in covenant theology would hold to an infant baptism. Now, you can be a covenant theologian and not hold to infant baptism, but I don't think anybody that's a dispensationalist or a new covenant theologian would believe in infant baptism. So if we were to to point to one system as being the infant baptism system, it would be the covenant theologians. Which one believes that Israel and the church are completely separate and God has separate purposes for them? That's the dispensational perspective. Which one would say that um, that the law of, of the Old Testament has been fulfilled and no longer applicable to the New Testament believer? That would be the New Covenant theologian. Now, again, 
the New Covenant theologian and the Covenant theologian are keeping the same laws, essentially. They're keeping them from different motivation, though. Covenant theologian says that the Old Testament laws are still binding on the New Testament believer, all of them except for the ceremonial laws and the civil laws, the things that were specifically related to the government of Israel. But the moral laws are to be carried over into the New Testament. The New Covenant theologian would say, we keep those same moral laws, but we keep them because Christ gave them to us in the form of the law of Christ in the New Testament. So they're keeping the same laws, but how they explain it is differently. It is certainly more convenient from the New Covenant theologian perspective. Uh, It simplifies it. It basically is saying, if it's not said in the New Testament, then it's not obligated to be kept by the New Testament believer. Whereas the covenant theologian has to say, if it's not civil, if it's not ceremonial, then it's not necessarily binding on the New Testament believer. But there's some gray areas potentially in there as to, well, which one of those three categories? Is it civil, is it ceremonial, or is it moral? Um, And so the new covenant theologian has the advantage in saying, if it's not talked about in the New Testament, then the New Testament believer doesn't have to keep it. An example that we mentioned last week would be in the area of tattoos. Now, I believe that tattoos were were way different in the Old Testament when God institutes laws against tattoos, that uh, what they were being used for, what was very demonic in the fact that it was an act of worship for pagan religions, um, we don't have it dealt with in the New Testament. Um, and so I believe that there's freedom there. It's, it's, it's allowed. It's something that a, a New Testament believer can make a decision about. There's going to be differences of opinion. We're going to have people here at Sovereign Hope that would say, no, nah, that's not a good idea. We're going to have others at Sovereign Hope that are going to say, hey, that's, a, that's, a, that's an okay thing. Do it if you want to. Um, the New Covenant theologian would say there's absolute freedom there because it's not dealt with in the New Testament. So some examples there of how that's relevant to even how we choose to to live our life uh, today. We looked at application for what we want to accomplish in studying these three systems. Ultimately, me wanting to move our church more and more closer to a new covenant perspective is that we want covenant to lead us to worship. In all of this, we should see the glory of Christ in that Christ fulfills all the covenants that we're going to deal with. That every time God establishes a covenant with man, man fails to honor his obligation in the covenant. And ultimately, Christ is sent as the covenant keeper for us. And so we see Christ being the ultimate seed of Abraham. That Christ is the ultimate seed of Eve. Every kid that she had was sinful. Every kid that she had failed to be the Messiah. That Christ is the ultimate seed of both Eve and Abraham that Christ is the ultimate king that comes from David. All of David's descendants fall short of being the type of king that we would want to rule and reign forever. So we see that Christ is ultimately the fulfiller of God's covenants. And then secondly, let covenant lead to assurance. We talked last week that God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes promises, but then he visualizes that covenant. He reiterates that covenant over and over for Abraham to give assurance to Abraham. Abraham says, how do I know that you're going to keep your promises. And God enters into covenant with Abraham as a, as a means of assuring Abraham that he will honor what he has promised to do. Any questions that maybe you were left with last week after our first part of covenant theology that I can answer before we get into part two today?
any lingering questions that need to be answered, any confusion. All right, let's dive right in today. We're going to be looking at uh, what we labeled as the three main covenants of covenant theology last week. Covenant theology would say that there is a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, and then a covenant of grace. And these unfold in Scripture. And then it's under the covenant of grace that we see uh, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant. All those covenants that we listed off last week would fall under the umbrella of a covenant of grace. So we're going to look at these three covenants that New Covenant theology would say doesn't exist. New Covenant theology would say that these aren't covenants and they should not be understood as covenants. Um, I'm going to explain to you in the course of today, uh, this is an area where I think I would disagree with New Covenant theology. And I would lean more towards covenant theology in this area. And we'll look at some of the reasons for that. So we're going to look at a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace today. And then next week, we're going to look at the, the covenants that fall under that umbrella of grace. We're going to look at the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then ultimately letting that lead us into the new covenant of the New Testament. Okay? First off, what is a covenant? We use that term a lot, and we're going to continue to use it a lot. There's a lot of different definitions for what a covenant is. We're going to understand it more in its basic definition. It's a promise or a solemn oath. It's a promise or a solemn oath. It's a binding relationship with blessing and obligations. a promise or a solemn oath it's a binding relationship with blessing and obligations now the covenants that we're talking about are not the only covenants in scripture there were covenants made between individuals um, that you can read about in the old testament at times covenants are given in a conditional sense and at times they are given in an unconditional sense A conditional covenant means that if the requirements are met, then the promises are enforceable, meaning you only get the promises if you keep your end of the covenant. Covenant theology says the reason that the land promises for Israel are done away with partly is because they did not keep their end of the bargain. They did not fulfill their requirements. The other aspect that covenant theology would say is that we need to understand the fulfillment of land promises in a spiritual sense in the New Testament through the church. But there are conditional and unconditional promises given in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Look at Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 25. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night in the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. 
Would you say that's conditional or unconditional, the covenant that God is talking about there? It's unconditional. God's saying, if I've not established a covenant with day and night and fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, if I haven't made a covenant, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a rhetorical type thing. He's saying, if I haven't done this, then I'm going to reject the offspring of David. But the implication is, I have made a covenant. I have made a covenant with day and night. I have made a covenant for the fixed order of creation. Therefore, I will keep my covenant to raise up an offspring of David who will ultimately rule and reign forever. Look at Psalms 132. Looking at the same covenant being discussed, Psalms chapter 132. Down at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Conditional or unconditional? It's both. There's two promises being made there. The first promise is the covenant that we looked at in Jeremiah just a minute ago, that God is going to raise up a descendant of David. Verse 11, one of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. That's ultimately talking about Jesus. God's saying, there's a covenant with David. I will raise up one of his offspring who will rule and reign forever. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. But there's also a second aspect. He says, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Meaning, I will continue to allow David's descendants to sit on the throne until we get to that ultimate one. But we know through sin that Jeconiah commits some some stuff that ultimately results in a curse where God takes the throne away and ultimately gives it back through the person of Christ. But there's two aspects of the covenant here. I will raise up somebody who will reign forever that comes from David. And I will also continue to allow David's sons to sit on the throne until we get to that offspring as long as they keep my covenant. Now look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 15. Genesis chapter 9, verse 15. This is the covenant that God makes with Noah. Let's start in verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. That's an unconditional covenant. There's nothing that Noah or mankind has to do to maintain that relationship. 
God is not going to ever destroy this earth again with water, with a flood. Now, we know from the New Testament that he, he will destroy it with fire, that he will bring his judgment in the form of fire, but he makes a covenant. A covenant that says, when you see rain clouds from here on out, you do not have to worry about my wrath being poured out like I did just now. And it's an unconditional covenant. Okay, so we see conditional and unconditional covenants at times in Scripture. The first covenant that we're looking at today is what we would call the covenant of redemption. A covenant of redemption. It's an eternal plan executed in history. Ultimately, the covenant of redemption is made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past, in which the Father determined to save a portion of mankind. The Son would meet the conditions and the Spirit would apply them to the saved. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we see this covenant, this, this plan of God that happened in eternity past being discussed by Paul with the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now flip over to First Peter chapter 1. First in verse 2 of First Peter chapter 1, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You see all three aspects of the Trinity there. Foreknowledge of God, the application by the Spirit, the blood of Christ. If you skip down to verse 18. So 1 Peter 1:18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What you see here in these passages, and then if you want to jot down Revelation thirteen eight, 
talks about our names being written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. What we understand from these passages is that the plan of salvation through Christ is not God's plan B. It's not what God decided to do in reaction to what Adam and Eve did in the garden. The covenant of redemption, and it's important to to remind you that New Covenant theology, while they don't call this a covenant of redemption, they still believe in what we're talking about. They still believe that before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to save man through Christ from his sin for his glory forever. They just don't want to call it covenant of redemption. They call it God's plan of redemption, God's purpose of redemption. To me, it doesn't really matter what word you're using. The importance is knowing that this, this is intact that God doesn't react to Adam and Eve. It didn't throw off course what he was planning to do. When he created Adam and Eve, before he created them, it was already in place that Christ was going to come to this earth as man to redeem man. Okay, So it's not a reaction by God to fix everything. It was his plan all along to have to fix everything. Okay, So we call that the covenant of redemption. The parties that are involved that we've already seen are the Trinity, or is the Trinity. If you want to jot this down on the back, you can make this little chart to help you see the differences in these three covenants. The initiator of this covenant was the Father, specifically in the Trinity. In the time it took place in eternity past. If we're thinking in terms of time, it happened before the foundations of the world. Listen to how it's described. God the Father and God the Son covenanted together for the redemption of the human race. The Father appointing the Son to be the mediator, the second Adam, whose life would be given for the salvation of the world. And the Son accepting the commission, promising that he would do the work which the Father had given him to do and fulfill all righteousness by obeying the law of God. Thus, before the foundation of the world, within the eternal being of God, it had been determined that creation would not be destroyed by sin, but that rebellion and iniquity would be overcome by God's grace, that Christ would become the new head of humanity, the savior of the world, and that God would be glorified. In your notes, in your notes the initiator is the Father. The Father, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his Son. The Father initiates this plan. He gives people to the Son. If you want to jot down some of these references, John six thirty nine, John ten twenty nine, John seventeen two. These are passages that talk about Christ receiving everyone that God had intended to give to him. That all those that are supposed to will come to Christ for salvation. There's a guarantee in place. It's not that God said, son, I'm going to send you to be the savior of the world. And we're hoping and hoping and hoping that people will come to salvation. No, there was a guarantee in place. There were names written in the book of life. God knew God. God was involved in knowing that people were going to come to salvation. And all that were supposed to come would come to Christ. There was a guaranteed plan in place, a plan that would be accomplished, a plan that we see in Revelation with with people from all tribes, nations, and tongues worshiping their names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. It was a plan that was organized by the Trinity before creation ever happened. The executor is the Son. 
he accomplishes the plan. He's the one that comes to fulfill the work of the Father. He carries it out the way that the Father intended. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ is the executor of this covenant. And then the applier is the Spirit. He brings people to faithful union in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that draws us. It's the Holy Spirit that changes our heart, that opens our eyes to the gospel. He's the one that applies the work of Christ to us. So the Father plans it. The Son carries it out. The Spirit applies it to the children of God. The Holy Spirit is the sealer of our inheritance. All right, so that's the covenant of redemption. Covenant language is, is, is there. We don't have the word covenant specifically being applied to it. Again, I'm not concerned as to whether you call it the plan of God, the covenant of God, the purpose of God. What I am concerned about is that we understand the truths of what's going on there. So New Covenant theology says don't call it a covenant because the Bible doesn't call it a covenant. Covenant theologians say call it a covenant because because it just makes sense. It flows with the rest of the covenants. It's how God works with man. However you want to view it, let's just understand that the plan of redemption was in eternity past. All right? Which moves us to the covenant of works. The covenant of works. It's a plan to be holy. It's a plan to be holy. Sometimes this covenant is referred to as uh, the Edenic covenant. Because it takes place in Eden. Or the covenant of creation. Covenant of works. It's the plan that God put in place with Adam upon his creation. In Genesis chapter 2. Actually, we'll start in verse or chapter 1, verse 28, and then we'll carry it into chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This is after God has created Adam and Eve. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. We go into chapter 2 now, skipping down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Westminster Confession says this about the covenant of works. It's the first covenant made with man, 
And it was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity or his descendants upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. The covenant of works was made after the creation of man between Adam and God in which Adam would have everlasting life dependent upon the condition of Adam's obedience to God's commands to abstain from eating the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Reaping the cursing of the covenant failure, it condemned the whole human race, identifying it as a disobedient body. So this covenant of works is made between God and man. So the involving parties, God and man. Now specifically, it's Adam, but we know from other passages of Scripture that Adam is identified as the head of the human race. And so by making the covenant with Adam, God is making that covenant with the entire human race. The initiator was God. It took place at creation. The condition, the expectation for Adam was perfect obedience. The reward was eternal life. The penalty Was death. I think it's important for us to see that Adam was not created in a perfect state in the way that sometimes we would use the term perfection, meaning Adam was not created the way that we will one day be transformed into. When we talk about glorification, where we receive a body that's without sin, that's without the effects of sin, that will dwell with Christ for eternity, that is not the state that Adam was created in. Because when we hear that state, when we read about that state in Scripture, the implication is is that we will never choose to sin. That we we are put into a position, we are put into a condition where we always choose to be in right relationship with God, that no temptation comes upon us. There's no sin that we can choose to do. Otherwise, our eternity would be at, uh, would be at risk. If, if Christ comes back and we all get new bodies and we're glorified, but there's still the threat that somebody on a bad day is going to make a wrong choice, then our eternity that we're waiting for, this hope that we're longing for, is put at risk. Because if one of us makes a bad decision in eternity, death comes back into play, sin comes back into play, and all the things that we hope to escape are back into play. Adam was not created in a glorified state. It's probably better to, to view Adam as being created in a neutral state. He was created in a condition that none of us were born into. He was created in a, in a situation where he had the ability to choose right from wrong, and was not hindered by any type of sinful nature. Okay, He was created in a state of integrity. There was moral goodness, but he was not glorified. He had the ability to obey God and attain righteousness, or disobey and bring condemnation. He functions as the head, or like the president for all mankind. There are things that our president does with other nations that have a binding effect on all the people of the United States. The president acts as our representative a lot of times. He makes choices and decisions that ultimately bring 
either blessing or cursing upon us as a people. In the same way Adam acts as the head of mankind, makes choices and decisions that would either bring blessing or cursing upon us. We know from Scripture that perfect obedience is always required by God. James 2.10 talks about if we disobey one aspect of the law, we are guilty of breaking the entire law. Galatians chapter 3, Paul's talking about those that would seek to earn their salvation through obedience to the law. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. The implication here being that that unless we keep all aspects of the law, we're guilty of breaking God's law. So Adam was required to be completely perfect, be 100% perfect to God's laws. And if he were to break that, then he would be guilty of breaking God's law and would bring sin into creation. So Adam's created in a, in a morally neutral state. He, he's not hindered by a sin nature, which, if you think about it, really puts the point of guilt even more so on Adam because he was not tempted from the inside. There was no, you know, James talks about that we are enticed, our sin nature is enticed by temptation. We're led astray because ultimately we're, we're sinful beings. We're born into sin, and so we do sinful things. Adam, on the other hand, did not have that type of condition to worry about. He did not have sinful inclinations. So when Satan comes along, it was not a guaranteed thing that he would fall into sin like so oftentimes it is for us. He's not enticed by his inward nature. He, in his his state of moral integrity, he falls into sin. He willfully chooses to commit cosmic treason against his creator completely absent from any nature working inside of him. In fact, you could say it was wor- he was working against the nature working inside of him, that he was create- created in a state where he should have been able to choose right. He had the ability to choose right. Now, we step into a state of speculation about how this would have played out had it gone differently. But I think it's important to speculate a little bit to fully understand the relationship of what was going on with this covenant with Adam. God creates Adam, God puts him in the garden, God gives him obligations. And, and what it seems to imply from Scripture is that had Adam kept these obligations for a set period of time, we don't know what that time period would have been. We know Christ came and lived for 33 years obedient to God's word, and he fulfilled righteousness for us. Would Adam have had to have lived in the state for 33 years? I don't know how long the state would have been. But the implication from Scripture is, had Adam chosen righteousness, had Adam chosen not to eat of the tree of the garden of of knowledge of good and evil, had he chosen to do what God had told him to do, he would have earned righteousness for all of mankind. And he would have achieved glorification to where Adam and Eve would reproduce spiritual children in relationship to God, who would have been born with a righteous nature, not a sinful nature. Okay, so... How that would have played out, we don't know. Scripture doesn't give us answers to how long did Adam have to be obedient. Uh, Could other people have sinned potentially when they were born of Adam and Eve? We're not given the answer to those questions. The implication is, though, that there was a probationary period. Had Adam chosen obedience, he would have eaten of the tree of life. He would have been granted eternal life. 
Sin would have never come to creation. Death would have never come to creation. Adam would have expanded God's image to the ends of the earth. You realize he still had the same type of commission that we have. He was put in the garden and he was told to be fruitful and multiply, to increase God's image. And he was supposed to expand upon that to the ends of the earth. Adam and Eve could not have been fruitful and multiplied for very long before somebody would have had to move outside the garden. He had the same type of commission, take God's image to the ends of the earth. The same commission that we have today. It's different because we're now fighting against sin and death. But we still have that same commission to be fruitful and multiply as believers, to multiply spiritually. So Adam created in a, in a morally neutral type state. He can choose right. He can choose wrong. His choice would determine the destiny of the rest of mankind. We know that he chooses sin ultimately condemning us because he's our representative. Why is this important? The implication for us is that it helps us to understand some things. It helps us to understand why the world is the way that it is. For my eighth grade students, we're going to be talking about a biblical worldview this year. A biblical worldview starts with understanding creation. It starts with understanding original sin. It starts with understanding the fall. Because when you understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3... It helps you understand why the world is the way that it is. That we have a responsibility to submit to a creator because he has creator rights over us. But that ultimately our our headship of Adam failed to submit to our creator, thus condemning us into a sinful nature, which has resulted in, in this earth being fallen, evil, and it's corrupt. The basis for original sin, our corruption, the imputation of Adam's guilt to our account is understood through Genesis 1 through 3. So it helps us to understand why the world is the way that it is. It helps us to understand the importance of Christ actively obeying and winning righteousness for us. It helps us to understand the importance of Christ winning righteousness for us. Christ's obedience becomes all the more important when we realize that it was part of the covenant of works originally given to Adam That in order to enjoy life forever, you have to obey me as your creator. And Adam failed at it. So Christ comes to be obedient for us. So understanding Genesis 1 through 3 in light of covenant, it helps us to understand why Christ had to come be obedient for us. Lastly, it helps us to understand the origins of evil and that they will ultimately be destroyed. It helps us to understand where evil comes from. It helps us to understand that evil will be destroyed one day. So as we go through difficulties, as we go through trials and and tribulations, and we see evil around us, we see things not going the way that they should be going. We talked about this in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It causes us to long for the day when Jesus comes to bring justice to this earth, to make wrongs right. We talked about that in the last part of 2 Thessalonians, that when Jesus comes, he brings justice. He makes everything right. Romans chapter 16. Paul reminds the church at Rome this. He draws their attention back to Genesis 3 in in Romans 16 verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
We see this played out in the book of Revelation. If you wanted to jot down Revelation 12, 9, Revelation 22, and then Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. We see the ultimate demise of Satan play out in Revelation. That the serpent who comes to wreck creation in Genesis 3 ultimately is destroyed. He's defeated by Christ. And we see that we see glimpses of that in the New Testament. We see that prophecy take place in Genesis 3 that ultimately somebody from Eve was going to crush Satan's head. We see that play out more and more in the New Testament. Ultimately, we'll see that when Christ returns. All right. Why do I think it's correct to call this a covenant? Okay, I told you New Covenant theologians would still agree with everything that I've said today. They just wouldn't call it the covenant of works. Some reasons I think it's correct to call it a covenant. Number one, as we already read in Jeremiah 33, God talks about a covenant that he has with day and night. Now, we don't see God make a covenant with day and night here in Genesis 1 through 3. We don't see the word covenant pop up. We don't see God say, I'm making a covenant with day and night to where the sun will come up and go down, the moon will come up and come down. There's no covenant language. It's not referred to here in Genesis 1 through 3. And yet in Jeremiah, there's a reference that I have a covenant with day and night. At some point, a covenant was made, even though we weren't given that type of language. Secondly, Adam and Eve were in a covenant together, but it's not mentioned. Malachi 2.14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In the next couple of months, we're going to see covenant played out in the midst of our church as Jesse and Cortland get married and as Jordan and Topi get married. They enter into a covenant relationship with each other, a binding commitment to each other. Scripture reveals marriage as a covenant. Now, I was telling, I was telling Jesse that I'm excited that we're teaching through this now in anticipation of him and Cortland being married because they will have a better perspective of what they are doing on that day in light of the covenant they see God has entered into with us. The binding agreement, the responsibility that takes place in that relationship. But God refers to marriage as a covenant, but we don't see any covenant word used when Adam and Eve are married in the Garden of Eden and commanded to be fruitful and multiply. So what we're seeing is that there is evidence of covenant being in place when covenant is not always mentioned in that time. Third, the earth is defiled as a result of covenant breaking. In Isaiah 24, 5, there's a reference to the eternal covenant being broken, and that's why creation is the way that it is. Isaiah 24, 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. So we're given a glimpse for why the world is the way that it is, because a covenant has been broken. Fourthly, covenant concepts do not always use the word covenant. If you want to jot down 2 Samuel 7 and then Psalm 89.3, when God gives the covenant to David, he doesn't use the word covenant. It's later on in Scripture that we see the word covenant being used to describe the relationship 
between David and God. There's one other verse that, yep, Hosea 6, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, God's referring to Israel here, and he's saying that they've broken the covenant, and he says, just like Adam, they have broken the covenant. So there's implications here from Scripture that it is a covenant, even though covenant is not specifically referred to in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We've seen that other places, covenants are mentioned that weren't specifically mentioned when they were given. We've seen that um, the earth is defiled because of covenant breaking. And we now see that there's at least one reference to Adam breaking a covenant, just like Israel has broken covenant. What was Adam commanded to do? I had you guys discussing this in groups. What are some of the obligations that you felt like were, were placed upon Adam in the garden? What was he commanded to do? Okay, he was told to be fruitful and multiply. All right, to be a steward of creation, to, to subdue creation, to lead creation, to, to take care of it. What else? Okay, and not eat of the tree. Those are the three things that, that I identify from Scripture that Adam had a responsibility to do, to be fruitful and multiply, to rule the earth, and don't eat of the tree. Now, Adam, again, was not given the moral laws that we have because Adam would have kept those naturally. There was, there was not that inner working of sin in him. But God does specially reveal to him some expectations. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Rule the earth. And don't eat of the tree. Adam was promised the tree of life. Had Adam kept these obligations, he would have been rewarded with the tree of life. And I told you earlier, he would have eaten of it and lived forever. We see the tree of life pop up again in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation chapter 22 Verse 2, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. In verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. They may enter the city by the gates. Adam was promised the tree of life. That promise was revoked because he did not keep the obligations of the covenant. That tree of life is once again promised to us through the new covenant. That through faith in Christ, we too can eat of the tree of life one day. So Adam's given these obligations. He's given these responsibilities, these commands to obey. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule the earth. Don't eat of the tree. The reward would be eternal life. The question was, would man trust God's provision or trust his own guidance and judgment? We know that through the temptation of Satan that man acted believing God was neither good or in control. The belief was that God was infringing on their rights. You see that attack by Satan when Satan comes to Eve and says, God's holding you back. God is wanting to withhold something good from you. He knows that if you were to eat of this, it would improve you. It would make you better. 
And then he also calls into question the authority and the, the rule of God by saying, if you do this, you will not die. And we see that Adam and Eve fall prey to that deception, believing that God is infringing on their rights to be like him. They partake of the tree. And what were your, some of your thoughts on why Satan attacked Eve and not Adam? Why did, why did Satan go to Eve instead of going directly to the head of the human race, Adam? And there's not really right or wrong answers here, but any thoughts on why he went to Eve and not Adam? Angela, share your thoughts. Okay, it was definitely the first attack on gender and the gender roles that God had established, that he had established Adam as the leader of the relationship, the leader of mankind. There were leadership responsibilities given to Adam that were not given to Eve, and it's the first attack on gender roles that we see as Satan bypasses the leader and goes to the one who is supposed to be in submission to the leadership of Adam and deals with her directly. What else? Okay, there's the potential that Adam didn't pass along the, um, the instructions correctly because she adds to it that we're not allowed to touch it. It could also be an expression of something that was already working in her mind that she didn't understand why they weren't allowed to do it. And, 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 and already beginning to maybe even feel some infringement on her rights, we're not even allowed to touch it. That, that God is, is already being viewed as someone, as, as a being who is withholding something from them. What else? Okay. Yeah. All all these things would be correct. Some of the things that I wrote down too is that because she's not the head of the covenant, she doesn't feel as responsible for fulfilling it. Meaning that sometimes when when um, somebody in the workplace gives instructions to a manager. And that manager is supposed to pass those on to the employees. The employees don't always feel the same weight to carry out those instructions like the manager does. Manager gets it from the boss. He feels a weight. We've got to get this done. He passes that along to his employees. Hey, our boss wants us to do this. Sometimes those, uh, that responsibility is not felt to the same degree as it is by the person who's ultimately in charge of making it happen. So Satan bypasses the one who's ultimately responsible and goes to the one who's not the head of the covenant. Uh, she didn't receive the command directly, which means she was probably more open to argument and doubt. She wasn't there to receive the full instruction. And then she was probably uh, going to be most effective in reaching Adam's heart, uh, being that he would have probably been on guard and prepared and ready when Satan came to him to see his wife influencing him. I would have been more easy for his heart to fall prey 
to that. Now, ultimately, I believe that Adam was there while this was happening, while this was going on, because it says that Eve gives to her husband who was with her. So ultimately, I see Adam failing first, not in eating of the tree, but not taking control of creation. Because we see that this is Satan embodying a serpent, taking the form of a serpent, however you want to understand that. Adam is not subjected to creation. He is supposed to rule and subdue creation. So if any aspect of creation is seeking to violate God's commands, Adam has a responsibility to take control of it. He's the leader of creation. So you could argue that the the first failure by Adam was not eating of the tree. It was a failure to step in and take control of creation. He's there watching the serpent interact with his wife, and he does nothing to defend her. He does nothing to protect her. He allows her to fall prey to this deception, and then he participates with her. He's lazy. He's lazy from the beginning, and it's why we as men struggle with laziness from here on after. We're lazy in taking responsibility to lead, to lead our families, to, to lead in, in other aspects of our life, we want to be lazy because of our sin nature. And we see that because we get it from the first man, our forefather, Adam. Lazy in creation, not taking control of creation like he should. And he ultimately condemns his race because of it. The consequences of breaking the covenant. Total depravity. The term that we use to describe evil affects all of us. And it affects us in all aspects of who we are. So when when you see the word depravity used, that man is depraved, it's not saying that man is as evil as he could possibly be. It's not that we are fully evil to the fullest extent, that we never do anything remotely good, and that all we do is the extreme evil. None of us are to that extreme. We're not as evil as we could be. What it does mean when we say that man is depraved to his core is that all aspects of us are affected by our sin. That we are evil in in all areas of our life. That we are affected by sin. That our sin nature affects all aspects of who we are. Romans 3, 9 through 18 is a good description of how corrupt we have become. Paul finishes his description of how man cannot earn salvation what then are we jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both jews and greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they've become worthless no one does good not even one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Description of mankind. Before the fall, we could sin or not sin, but after the fall, we're unable not to sin. Meaning, we cannot reach a a state where we are always doing the right thing. Before the fall, Adam had the ability to not sin ever. He could choose to do right and would ultimately earn righteousness. We don't have that option. We are born into a sinful state. Born into a sinful state. And we don't have the choice. We don't have the option to not sin as far as our overall choices. Now, we can choose right and wrong, but ultimately we cannot reach a state where we are not choosing sin ever. We see shame that comes from the decision, the consequence of breaking the covenant. Shame of their nakedness. We see the guilt that comes as they hide from God. We see spiritual and physical death. Those that 
when we, when we were talking with our, our Mormon friends, Lauren and I, they, they don't really see original sin the same way that we do. And I was having to describe to them that part of the way we know that we are held responsible for what Adam did is that children die before they're ever born, before they're ever able to make choices and decisions. They die because Adam's guilt is imputed to them. If, if death is the wage of sin, we are born into sin. It's why babies can die before they can ever make a choice to actively sin. It's because Adam's guilt is imputed to them. They lose their residency. God kicks them out of the garden. They also lose their communion with God, ultimately result, resulting in them becoming, and their offspring becoming children of wrath. In Ephesians chapter 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the condition we're in before salvation. We're about to talk about the covenant of grace real quick because we're going to really get into it next week. I wanted to just introduce it. But before we do that, I think it's important to see because sometimes works gets a bad rap that there's no grace. That ultimately man's response was to obey and if man didn't respond, he was held accountable, which is true. But it's incorrect to think that the covenant of grace that the aspect of grace is not present in the covenant of works. A couple ways that we see God's grace in this covenant of works. First, God created and he gave life. God was not obligated to create. God did not need to create. He chose to create. He graciously chose to bring humankind into existence. It was a, it was a point of grace for him to do so. He was not obligated. It was not necessary. Secondly, God demands obedience with a promise of blessing. He tells Adam to, to obey or he'll die, the implication being, if you obey, you will live. You will continue to live. God could have easily demanded obedience without any promise of blessing. He has the right. He has the, we have the responsibility to obey him simply because he's created us. He was not obligated to bless us for our obedience. He graciously responds to our obedience with blessing, ultimately now in the person of Christ who comes to obey for us, securing those blessings for us. Thirdly, God declares all sin deserves death. Romans 6.23, it's the wages of sin that brings death, yet he spares sinners. The curse of this, of this covenant breaking was that Adam and Eve were supposed to die. Now, we know they ultimately do physically die, but God would have been very justified in bringing death to them immediately. In our, in our discussion about God and um, him potentially being a mean God because he kills in the Old Testament, there's grace in the Mosaic law in the sense that technically all sin should have brought capital punishment. If we go off of God's standard that the wages of sin is death, he should have listed off every command to Moses and said, if you break any of these, you die. And yet we see that he graciously only holds people accountable to death for some of those laws. That only immediate death is brought for some of those laws. Whereas God would have been very, very right and just to kill for breaking any of his laws. He would have been very right to bring death to Adam and Eve immediately. And yet he doesn't. He graciously spares them. We also see, fourthly, that God removes Adam from the garden so he couldn't eat of the tree of life. 
We see the Trinity in discussion, and they say, We've got to remove Adam from this garden, lest he eat of the tree of life and live forever in this condition. God doesn't banish them from the garden to, to only punish them. He, he, he abandons them from the garden to protect them so that they do not eat of this tree of life before the time is right. We've already seen in Revelation, the tree of life is offered to us now to eat of it and to, and to enjoy eternal life forever. But had Adam eaten of that in this sinful condition, he would have lived forever as a sinful being. And God protects him ultimately from that type of condition. Lastly, covenant of grace. It's God's plan to save. We see this first of all in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is referred to as the proto-evangelium. It's the first promise of the gospel. The promise of redemption and eternal life to those believing in the coming Redeemer. It's the, requ- the requirement is perfect obedience. It's not nullified by grace, but rather fulfilled by Christ on behalf of his people. This covenant is sometimes referred to as the Adamic covenant. In Genesis 3.15, God is dealing with Adam, Eve, and the serpent. He punishes the serpent, curses he to, um, to crawl on his belly. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first promise of the gospel. The agreement is between her seed, talking about Eve, who we know to be Christ and God. Christ accomplishes the crushing of Satan. Those in Christ share in the covenant blessings, while those that remain in Adam through disobedience and unfaithfulness continue in Adam's failure and covenant cursings. I think it's important to note that the covenant of grace is implemented before God brings the cursings of the covenant of works. Notice that before he ever deals with Adam and Eve's failure to keep the covenant of works, he's already implementing the covenant of grace. He's already said, I'm going to send someone to fix this. In dealing with Satan, before I, before I punish these two for breaking my covenant, I want you to know that there's another covenant, a covenant that will fix What's just happened here? I'm going to send someone to ultimately keep the covenant of works in a way that Adam did not. Again, it's, it's, it's grace coming through in how, in how God is dealing with Adam and Eve that he's already talking about another covenant before he's finished dealing with this covenant that they've broken. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second. Commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Close with Genesis 3, verse 20. Adam expresses faith in this covenant of grace. By naming his wife Eve. Says the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam believes that God is going to send life through a descendant of Eve. And we know that Christ eventually saves us from everything that we lost in the garden. But not only that, he takes us further than we ever were in the garden. It's not that it's not just that. That Jesus comes to 
to fix what Adam did. He doesn't just bring us back to a, a neutral state. See, there's the death of Christ that's so important. That he, 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 he forgives us, that God forgives us on the sacrifice of Jesus for all of our wrongdoing. But if that's all that Jesus did, if he just showed up as a, as a 33-year-old man and died on the cross, we would be forgiven of our sins and brought back to a state of neutrality where we would have to then choose righteousness. But Christ takes us further. He doesn't just do what Adam failed to do and that he broke the covenant. Christ does what Adam never did do, and that was fulfill the covenant. And he obeys for us. He earns righteousness for us, taking us to eternal life where we now can eat of the tree of life. And we're going to see how this covenant of grace unfolds. Um, if you're keeping up with this chart real quick. God makes it with, or the parties involved is God and sinful humans now. It's initiated by God. takes place after the fall. The condition is not perfect obedience on our behalf. Now it's faith in Christ who is perfectly obedient for us. The reward is again eternal life. Penalty is what scripture refers to as the second death, eternal damnation in hell. Again, is it appropriate to call this the covenant of grace? Should we, should we understand it in that term? Maybe, maybe not. I think it's helpful. I think it helps us see all aspects of God's plan unfolding in covenant. So we see covenant of redemption where God determines before creation to save mankind. We see a covenant of works where God enters God's inner workings with Adam are based on him keeping obligations that he fails to keep. And then God bringing into play this covenant of grace that starts with the Adamic covenant here in Eden. I will send a seed of Eve to crush Satan. And that covenant of grace continues to unfold with the, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. We're going to see that covenant of grace unfolding um, beginning next week. I want us to close with a time of response, uh, simply responding through, again, partaking of the Lord's Supper this week. This week, specifically focusing on the aspect that when we partake of the juice, when we partake of the bread, we are cherishing the fact that Christ has done what our headship could not do. Adam failed. He failed to be that perfect bread for us. He failed to be the perfect, righteous, obedient representative for us. Instead, he brought wrath on us. He disobeyed. He failed to keep the covenant. We're held responsible for that. We're now sinful, born into sin. Christ fixes both aspects of that covenant breaking. He fixes the fact that Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do, and he fixes what Adam did that he was not supposed to do. So Christ comes to to shed his blood to get us back to a state of being neutral where our sins are now forgiven, our transgressions are now forgiven, that wrath has been poured out on the breaking of the covenant. But Christ also fulfilled the covenant. He was obedient for us. He kept the law. He kept the covenant. He was perfectly righteous on our behalf. And it's through faith in Christ, through this new covenant that we're going to be talking about that his work is now applied to our account. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to respond by partaking of the Lord's Supper.
together as, a, as an aspect of worship this morning, as an aspect of gratefulness and thankfulness. As we talk about covenant, again, it's not just to fill our, our minds with knowledge, but it's to help us see why we do the things we do as a church family. God, as we come to you this morning, we thank you that you chose to create, knowing that you were not obligated to do so. Father, we're thankful that you created in such a way where you didn't just demand your creation be obedient to you with nothing in return. Instead, you created us with the opportunity for blessing and for joy. And God, we're thankful this morning that while we have failed to keep the covenant of works through Adam, that before any of that ever took place, you had planned to fulfill this covenant for us through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we're thankful this morning that in Adam's failure, you have made provision for that failure through Christ, that ultimately Jesus has saved us from our transgressions, saved us from our covenant breaking, and that he's earned our right to partake of the tree of life one day through his perfect obedience. And so, God, as we celebrate that this morning, as we prepare to leave, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by the fact that we are in a covenant relationship with you, a covenant that is being kept not by our obedience, but by the obedience of Christ that's already been accomplished for us. I pray that that would radically shape our perspective on this week as we seek to serve you, as we seek to be fruitful and multiply by bringing your image to the ends of the earth through the sharing of the gospel, through the making of disciples. Father, I pray that we would be diligent with the work that you have given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.